there and welcome to the RT Radio 1 Davis Now Lectures podcast, a reshaping of the iconic Thomas Davis Lectures, which considered radio to be a university of the air, sharing the scholarship and thinking that shapes public decision-making and makes sense of our present selves. I'm Cleona Nianluan, its producer. The consultant editor and host of this present series on Making Home is architectural historian Dr Ellen Rowley. In this episode, she introduces a lecture that considers the relationship between psychology and design, that who we are depends on where we are, recorded with a contributing audience on location at Nanonagel Place in Cork City. This RT series was made with funding from the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with a television licence and academic partner, University College Dublin. This lecture series raises issues around housing, the home, how we live, where we live. Entitled Making Home, the series sets out to distill and to bring some important research and scholarship on the role of the home and housing in society today in Ireland and beyond. And by today, we mean the present, past and future todays. For this talk in the series, we're at Nanonagel Place in the heart of Cork City. Recently opened as a heritage centre with community and cultural and educational facilities is a really tasty architectural soup of varying building types and styles. This is a climbing complex of buildings on a tight wedge of city developed for Nanonagel's community of Ursuline sisters in the 1770s. So it was a convent, and Nanonagel was a nun. Well, she was a teacher, a radical advocate for Cork's poor, and a nun. In the 1820s, Nanonagel moved the Presentation Sisters here, and later, in the 1870s, the Fine Chapel was added, followed in the 1920s by a large brick primary school which fronts the street below. Over the last number of years, these buildings have been conserved and adapted for reuse and new architecture has been added to the site, making Nanonagel Place a most fitting venue for this evening's lecturer. Hugh Campbell is Professor of Architecture at University College Dublin and might be defined as the ultimate champion of all things architectural. Hugh is internationally renowned in his field of architectural education, culture and theory. Not only does he teach and write on architecture, but Hugh is also a maker of architectural exhibitions. And in 2018, he was heavily involved in that most international of celebrations of contemporary architecture, the Venice Biennale. For Hugh Campbell, architecture can never exist alone. Pure architecture is not of interest to him, but rather how architecture intersects, how it plays off other disciplines, other modes of inquiry and other creative forms from photography to psychology. Hugh's lecture, Houses in Motion, Architecture and Patterns of Dwelling, questions the business or the notion that who we are depends on where we are that the design of spaces and home places impacts upon ourself, upon our psyche. Welcome, Professor Hugh Campbell. 
you. Your work, your teaching, your essays are always magnanimous and inclusive. They draw on references from literature and from urban visual culture. Is that what we can expect from the talk this evening? Yes, Ellen, I think, I think it's fair to say that there will be a, a range of references from film, literature a little bit, some architecture. And then for that. before you launch in, I'm intrigued, as I'm sure others are, with this title, Houses in Motion. What's that all about? I, I had in my head, as I was writing this talk, two songs by Talking Heads. I just thought that that's quite appropriate for radio, Talking Heads. But um, one song is Houses in Motion and the other song is called This Must Be the Place. In a way, those two ideas of houses that embody ideas of motion and the idea that we identify with home as a place are both quite central to the talk. I'm certainly looking forward to this. Professor Hugh Campbell with his talk, Houses in Motion. Home. We identify with it. What I mean by this is that the domestic setting in which we live plays a very significant part in determining and in sustaining who we are. Having a home, while not a right enjoyed by everyone, is certainly a commonplace of the human condition. We spend a great deal of our time and of our lives at home. Our domestic space becomes, at a practical level, a storehouse of what we and our co-inhabitants own. It holds everything, often mostly to the point of overflowing. But beyond this, and through no special effort, but simply through the constant and practical processes of inhabitation, it also comes to hold our memories, our aspirations, our fears, our whole character, you might say. Our homes embody us. Even the most antiseptic and anonymous of dwellings somehow yields some kind of portrait of its occupants. It's not surprising then that the act of dwelling has often been conflated by philosophers with the very essence of being. Martin Heidegger, the German philosopher of the mid 20th century, considered dwelling as the exemplar of what he termed being in the world. And even if he meant this more abstractly than literally, his own traditional hut in the Black Forest has become emblematic of the concept. The Frenchman, Gaston Bachelard, also a philosopher, explored more material manifestations of the same idea in his celebrated book, The Poetics of Space, which was written in the late 1950s. In this work, being at home is bound up with ideas of becoming, of self-realization. Bachelard sets forth how spaces, settings, and even furniture within the home can act both as a source of and a vessel for dreams of the self. The most familiar elements, the attic, the cellar, the stair, the wardrobe, can produce poetic reverie by virtue of the associations and memories that they prompt and of the feelings that they engender. And even if these are individual experiences somehow private to each of us, Bachelard is interested in the extent to which they are also commonly shared and understood as when he tells us that the stairs to the basement only ever goes down, or when he describes how, in the attic, we, as he puts it, participate in the carpenter's solid geometry. Somehow, everyone knows what that means. Home is implicated 
in a slightly different way in more recent attempts by cultural psychologists to link consciousness and spatial experience. In asserting a fundamental and formative relationship between who we are and where we are, thinkers such as Rom Carre and the Irish psychologist Kieran Benson draw often on the spaces and landscapes of home to substantiate their portraits of what is termed the spatial self. Their work promotes the idea that we construct ourselves spatially, that our consciousness is premised on essential notions of interiority and exteriority and of locatedness. And while to some extent those remain quite abstract, generic categories, it's also true that the specific spaces where we spend most time, where we grow up, are those that, in a very real way, become us. Novelists and playwrights have always known this, of course. Settings in fiction so often rhyme with and thereby amplify character, and domestic settings doubly so. We might think of Jane Eyre, for instance, and the recurrent correlation between her state of mind and the spaces and places in which she finds herself, such as that window seat to which she withdraws with a book at the very start of the novel. Transported by the pictures in the book, she describes herself as being shrined in double retirement. Now, I've been using that example from Jane Eyre in lectures for many years because I think it helps students of architecture understand that part of their role in designing space is to establish exactly such rich relationships between their spaces and their occupants to create space for daydreams. We, as architects, are more like midwives, maybe, or consultants rather than parents in the creation of truly inhabited space. Winston Churchill's famous assertion that we shape our spaces and thereafter they shape us has always been something of a two-edged sword for architecture. If it seems on the one hand like an argument for innovation, we shape space, on the other hand it can be used to uphold tradition, to insist that the spatial configurations that we are used to must endure. And Churchill, when he said this, was actually arguing for the retention of the adversarial layout of the House of Commons when it was to be reconstructed after sustaining damage in the Blitz. He wanted that arrangement to endure as a sort of necessary precondition to parliamentary behaviour, as he understood it and enjoyed it, also enduring. So in this talk, I want to look at how specifically the architecture of home operates within this challenging back and forth of shaping and being shaped. And my first step is simply to assert that the spaces that we inhabit every day are habit-forming. After all, our habitat, the act of inhabiting, and our habits all derive from the same Latin word, habitare, meaning to dwell, itself a derivation from the Latin root habere, to have. So there is a close correspondence between our attributes, what we have, and our dwelling, where we live. Now most of the time this is taken for granted, and a lot of the time it exists as a kind of shared, tacit understanding, translated into norms of living, into the familiar vernacular house types with which populations and cultures become familiar. I'm alighting particularly on habits here, on patterns of behaviour, because they seem to emerge somewhat unbidden. They're slightly beyond our control. 
we don't consciously attend to them. They belong maybe more in the realm of the unconscious, but at the same time, they condition our every move and interaction. And what I'd like to ask is whether in fact it is our homes which make us act in specific ways, producing particular patterns of behavior. And beyond that, we might say even through that, even shaping our very selves. Now, not to be overly partisan, but I do think that this shaping of space and allowing space to shape us is something that Irish architecture is particularly good at. But I'll come back to that maybe towards the end of the talk. I'd like to start by talking for a while about Alfonso Coron's wondrous 2018 film, Roma. I think it could be said of this film that the house, maybe more than any of its inhabitants, is really the main protagonist. Exactly modelled on Cuaron's childhood home in the Colonia Roma neighbourhood of Mexico City, the house serves to frame and structure much of the action of the film. It configures and conditions relationships between the four children, the young Cuaron and his siblings, their mother Sophia, and between the family and their maids Cleo and Adela. Cuaron wanted the depiction of his home to be as faithful as possible. And because the interior of the actual house where he had lived had been radically altered, so while they could use that for external shots, they ended up buying another house on the same street and reconstructing an exact replica of Quaron's own house within it. Drawing on the director's memories and on family photographs, the set directors tracked down about 80% of the home's original furniture, which had been spread out among distant relatives. The rest they found or bought or built themselves. They stuffed all the drawers with objects, the wardrobes with clothes, even if they weren't going to be used or even seen on screen. For Quaron, it was of paramount importance that the very fabric of the house be as real as possible. He needed the architecture to be felt by the actors in order to lend authenticity to the performances and by extension to what the film showed its audiences. But besides the fabric and the content of the house, its general configuration is also important. A C-shape of interconnected rooms around a top-lit staircase allows the drama to unfold seamlessly and to drift from space to space. On the ground floor, rooms, or more like zones, are sometimes only demarcated by bookcases and furniture. They are semi-defined, and when those bookcases are removed late in the film, we understand the role that they've played. And this arrangement allows the lives of the family and their helpers to overlap at times, but to remain separate at others. Above, on the first floor, bedrooms and an informal living TV room are distributed around the hall. Again, the relative looseness or ad hocness of that arrangement is confirmed when, at a pivotal point in the film, their uses are rearranged. And finally, there's another informal circuit between the kitchen the backyard, the living quarters, and the roof, which acts as a kind of counterpoint to the spatial sequences in the main house. And this means that Cleo and Adela can serve those spaces without interruption, but they also get to enjoy a certain amount of privacy and autonomy. The whole home, I would argue, is defined by these interweaving but distinct patterns of movement. This is a house in motion. And the circuits are allowed to the family and to the servants, illuminate the divisions of class and of status in Mexican society. 
these people inhabit the same home, but on very different terms. And to some extent, in fact, it's the servants who seem to have more free reign and control over all the spaces than the family. They're the ones that rearranged all the living quarters on the first floor. Roma and the story of its creation demonstrates, I think, how architecture's spatial and structural relationships can condition narrative, can establish character, and can reflect more general societal norms. And although we don't have time to go into it here, I wonder, would the story of the film have unfolded differently, we might ask, or would lives have been differently lived in a house with more closed, separate rooms, or with more floors, or with a large garden, or with a drive-in passageway wide enough for that expensive American car? If our domestic surroundings form us, then isn't every change in those surroundings a potential reinvention of ourselves and our own story? Or to put it another way, can architecture change habits to the same extent as it engenders them in the first instance? To invoke a familiar feeling, it can certainly sometimes seem that our behaviour has become stuck in an unhealthy groove and that a change of habitat might help. Conversely, we might feel that it is our home which is constraining or contorting our behaviour and which needs to be escaped. We're confronted with the question of whether we want something new. The American writer Herman Melville, best known for Moby Dick, treats with this subject in an idiosyncratic short story called I and My Chimney, in which the narrator lives with his wife in a house that's dominated by its central chimney. So enormous that it prevents any easy connection, any safe passage, really, between the rooms of the house. Our narrator loves nothing more than to sit by the oversized chimney, smoking his pipe, so he's something of a chimney himself, adhering to tradition, stuck in the past or in the present. His long-suffering wife, on the other hand, wishes nothing more than to rid herself of this impediment within her own home. And she plots increasingly desperate ruses to achieve this. The chimney is a structural liability. There may be treasure hidden in the middle of it. Let's drill into it and see. I came upon this story through the writing of Anthony Vidler, the brilliant architectural theorist and historian whose work, The Architectural Uncanny, offered a whole new way of thinking about the relationship between the home and the unconscious. In Vidler's analysis of the Melville story, the home becomes emblematic of the condition of modern America, oscillating between the twin impulses of settlement and of movement, between the homestead and the frontier. And of course, those two always complement each other. Here is a home which determines not just habits, but mindsets and outlooks. Domestic patterns of behavior are linked to larger questions of cultural identity. And that tension between opening space up and keeping it enclosed certainly continued to resonate through American architecture, so that even in the famous prairie houses that Frank Lloyd Wright designed around Chicago in the 1910s, the flowing horizontal spaces extending into the landscape were always balanced by the vertical anchor of the hearth. And in his Roby house of 1909, maybe the most famous of those houses, the tall-backed dining chairs gather around the table creating a kind of protected oasis in that expansive open space. And certainly this opening up of space from movement quickly became a central tenet 
of modern architecture, whether it was through the creation of the kind of dynamic spatial sequences, which Le Corbusier liked to refer to as the architectural promenade, or simply through the reduction of structure to its minimum in order to maximize the openness and flexibility of space. In either case, the emphasis was on moving away from the idea of a house as a series of closed, contiguous but separate boxes towards a notion of spatial continuity and connectedness. And whether it was changes in society itself, new social and domestic practices, fewer servants, less hierarchy, whether it was these changes which necessitated the shift in architecture, or whether, in fact, the architects were running ahead of the game, anticipating change before it actually took hold, is the subject of ongoing debate. And certainly there are enough stories of owners struggling to maintain the patterns of behavior demanded by their new modern homes to suggest that building and living were not always in perfect step. The historian Alice Feldman, in her compelling study, Women and the Making of the Modern House, tries to bridge this distance by telling the story of several canonical houses from the modern period, this time from the point of view of their owners, all female, mostly forgotten, rather than their architects, all male, all famous. So we learn, for instance, about the young Dutch widow, Trus Schroeder, whose need for flexible living for her young family prompted the designer Gerrit Rietveld to invent sliding screens which allowed a very modest floor plan to be reconfigured over the course of every day, sometimes as separate rooms, sometimes as a single space. Or, on the other hand, we learn about Edith Farnsworth, who, having commissioned her friend Mies van der Rohe, the German émigré who transformed post-war American architecture, having commissioned him to design a weekend house for her outside Chicago, continually struggled to inhabit what he produced, a more or less completely open, glazed space on a raised podium. Not helped, of course, by the lack of curtains and by the Japanese architecture students who turned up with increasing regularity to take photos through the glass. The Farnsworth house is extraordinary, of course, but it's not much lived in, and I think it's fair to say that it is not really attuned to the ordinary rituals of domesticity. This isn't to suggest, though, that architecture can't openly invite us to reinvent our habits and in so doing to find new pleasures and new joys. A couple of years ago I saw a wonderful exhibition in the Barbican in London about the modern Japanese house and it catalogued some of the radical and experimental houses which had been created in Japan over that period. A house with a completely earthen floor under a tall timber roof. A house that is all concrete stair. A house that is U-shaped in plan, private space at its extremities, shared space at its curving centre. All of these made me get excited about the discipline of architecture all over again. But what struck me, alongside a willingness to experiment, was how readily life seemed to adapt to these new forms and new spaces. Perhaps we're not so hidebound by habit and by culture as we imagine. And it's important to note that, as the exhibition showed, these are not rarefied follies, nor necessarily the preserve of the rich. They are intensely living places which prompt these new patterns of behavior, these new habits. Among the most renowned 
of the houses on show was the Moriyami House, which the architect Rui Nishizawa designed in dense downtown Tokyo in 2005. The house is divided into 10 tiny blocks, like mini pavilions, which sit at such close quarters to each other that you can bridge from one to the next in mid-air or at roof level without being Jason Bourne. The owner, Moriyami-san, hosts a changing rota of lodgers, including for a week the Italian filmmaker Ila Becca, who made a film of his experiences. And in the film, we see Moriyami-san going through his daily round, eating, listening to music, watching movies, watering plants, talking with his tenants. He never seems to have to work. And whether he's dangling legs out a large window or poised on a single chair in a room dominated by outsized speakers, there's always something striking and original about the scene. It's as if domesticity is being freshly minted, seen for the first time as by a child. In houses such as these, living becomes an everyday adventure rather than a dull routine. Could what is true in Japan also be the case in Ireland? I want to conclude this short talk by considering how, in quiet but significant ways, Irish domestic habits have been shifting in recent times and the role that architecture has played in that change. In fact, I'd go so far as to assert that over the last couple of decades, architecture has been at its most influential, not in large showcase projects, the offices and public and cultural buildings, but rather in hundreds of back gardens and side passages in cities and towns where domestic extensions proliferate. Now, this is not necessarily a condition one wants to see persist, whereby so much architectural intelligence is trained on the reconfiguration and enlargement of the individual house. I'd much rather see architects more involved in the larger scale issues of housing, which Michelle and Alan have been talking about in their lectures. But what it does result in is a kind of cumulatively resounding impact, a sea change. And of course, from the each individual's point of view, each of these small projects is considered as a one-off endeavour prompted by a private need for change. But when we take them together, they amount, I think, to a profound cultural shift, a recognition that domestic life can be added up differently. I'm thinking here of the transformed routines and the new rituals that any reconfiguration of space can engender. The living space opens to the kitchen, the kitchen opens to the garden, the hallway is overlooked from above. So often the result of these reinventions is an increased level of connectivity, the kind of thing I talked about in the house that was in the film Roma. Spaces lead to each other, they link together, they flow. The house is set in motion. What began as the stuff of rarefied modernist experiment, of moving screens and pure glass boxes, has become a century later, the bread and butter of every revamp and extension we see on our streets and, of course, on our screens. There is now no dividing wall that can escape Dermot Bannon's sledgehammer, no separate front room that can escape the orthodoxy of the open plan of the free-flowing domestic realm. So much so that even though the capacity to rebuild or extend remains beyond the reach of many of us, the architecture that results has entered the popular imagination. So I wanted finally to ask whether that same sort of close attention to the rhyme 
between the self and space that we've seen is possible in the private home, whether that can be extended more broadly and at a larger scale. There are certainly instances of very considered housing projects in Ireland in recent times, although nowhere near enough. Look, for instance, at the rich and varied range of rooms and of openings created within O'Donnell and Toomey's timber yard housing on Dublin's Cork Street. Or look at the generous balconies and corner windows of ABK's Housing for the Elderly in South Hill, Limerick, which recently and deservedly won the RAI Silver Medal. What marks these projects out is their attention to the specific, to the kind of moments that Gaston Bachelard spoke about in The Poetics of Space, places to hold on to. And sometimes these moments acquire an added importance. In the home that he made for sufferers from Alzheimer's, the Irish architect Neil McLaughlin sought ways in which the organization and the spaces of his building might support the inhabitants in maintaining a better hold on their short and long-term memories. He became interested in how thresholds, routes and destinations, the beginnings, middles and ends of every daily journey could lend structure and coherence to experience and become habit-forming. Hence, no dead ends, no dark spaces, none of the incoherence or the closeness that usually characterizes such institutions. Instead, generous rooms with views to courtyards and corridors and spaces always linking to each other and beyond that to open space and to nature. In Neil's drawings of the project, the looping lines of every possible journey are included in, the processes of inhabitation anticipated. Here is architecture which wants to create a bond with its users at the most intimate level which uses the familiar ingredients of light and air and view and movement to stitch patterns of life which might be fitful or fleeting, but which have a capacity to endure. Here is architecture making a place which can in turn become home to those who live there. As Talking Heads put it, this must be the place. Home is where I want to be, but I guess I'm already there. I come home, she lifted up her wings, I guess that this must be the place. I can't tell one from the other. Did I find you or you find me? There was a time before we were born. If someone asks, this is where I'll be, where I'll be. Thank you. Thank you, Hugh. What a great and varied talk you brought us around the world and in and out of different spaces and places. We wanted to draw out some themes and strands around psychology and emotional health and behaviour and the domestic. So we have invited Hugh's sister, Dr Ashling Campbell, consultant psychiatrist at Cork University Hospital. So she's not invited just because she's Hugh's sister and grew up in the same family home as him. Ashling Campbell, as Hugh implied, there is a relationship between the home and its inhabitants that, in a good home, I think should be flexible, not too restrictive, but not too open. I think we want something in between. It made me think about Winnicott's notion of this good enough mother. He says that you don't have to be a perfect mother, just good enough. So the house doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be good enough. 
in a way, that rhythm of the house mirrors the rhythm of the relationship between an infant and its carer in the external world. That is a back and forth rhythm as well between need and its satisfaction and the imperfectness of that. There is always a question that remains around that relationship. There is initially an imaginary relationship for the infant and its carer. That question answered allows the infant to insert itself in some way into the symbolic world. There's an anchoring that has to take place, I think, in that relationship. In a house, we want to be anchored as well, but we want to be free to live our lives there. If the answer is always given to us, there's a lack of freedom in that children their spaces are small they like playhouses and tree houses and sometimes just cardboard boxes children want boundaries they need to keep anxiety at bay and hopefully as one gets older those boundaries become a little bit less restrictive it really struck me I think when we hear architects speak and we talk about this ideal home I, I know I myself tend to think of modern pleasant airy house a sort of ideal house in a way that will complement me but not intrude on me too much but of course in reality I think homes can be very mean and stifling. In my business, we often talk about boundaries with our patients. We encourage them to set limits on others, to retain some kind of sense of internal space. But it's so difficult to do that, I think, when the actual space you live in is so small. And I think it's no wonder that sometimes people's response to that is to just flee, to take your chances on the street. And of course, in old age, I, I thought it was really nice to hear Hugh's comment on the Alzheimer's housing. I think very often with the onset of old age, you end up in a more and more limited space. You go back to that dark playhouse. In my own area, we have a beautiful new inpatient acute unit that, that also is safe for people that are often very frightened. There are just some thoughts that, yeah. that I got thinking about. From. All of it chimes, that sense of home of, as refuge of the mind, but then you also mentioned people taking refuge away from the home to the street. Aaron O'Connell, you're the assistant director of the Cork Simon community. Thank you. Quite a few years ago, I worked in the high support housing and I was visiting this older gentleman who was with us for years and years and he wasn't well and he was in hospital. You go and you ask the normal questions. Do you need anything? Is there anything I can get you? And his automatic response was, I want to go home. Now that tells you something about a reason to live. The yearning to go home keeps people alive, keeps the spirit alive in lots of ways. And Hugh mentioned about habit forming and space and place. But when someone doesn't have a home, if they're on the streets, if they're in emergency accommodation, or if a family is living in a hotel and they have children, we can think about the impact of that on people in terms of their emotional state, their psychological state, damage it does to relationships, the stress it puts on people, the de developmental impacts it has on children who can't bring a friend home. And that's really important for us in terms of society, in terms of homes and providing homes for people. But the idea that Hugh mentions as well, that the idea that the domestic surroundings that they form us, that also says to me, we can reinvent ourselves. 
And that's almost the essence of what we would call the housing first approach, where you can give somebody a home and you start from there and you bring the supports, the wraparound supports to them in the, in the home. And then that allows them to make a choice about the supports that they're willing to accept at that particular time, whatever you have an offer, whatever their issues are. It gives them a chance to be able to start again because home is the key stabilizing factor, jump off point for us to re-engage with, with the communities around us because that means that we can create new memories, can start to heal. And Hugh mentioned this as well about the, the relationship between design and self. You see, we're all very different and our needs in terms of housing and our needs in terms of what space can provide for us may be very different. And the quality of the housing that we provide for people, it actually speaks to people about how we respect them. Uh, my name is Kevin Busby. I'm a lecturer in the School of Architecture here in Cork. So I'm researching uh, the suburbs of Cork, particularly of the 1960s, and I'm looking at how the original residents have changed the way that they use space within and around their homes over 50-plus years. So you have this suburban model of front wall, front garden, and particularly front facade. It seems to present a defensive barrier to the sanctuary of the interior that you've talked about. And the experience of this is very often reinforced for elderly residents with the perceived fear of crime. And yet, at the same time, this barrier prevents essential interaction and communication with the outside world. So we look to open up our interior spaces and to extend the private realm of our back gardens. Should we also look at the permeability of the front facade? Puts me in mind of the simple device of the stoop originating in Holland but then moving over to the States, but to New York particularly. And that simple device of having the wide platform extending from the front door and then the steps down to the street gives people a place where they feel comfortable because they think they're still within their own realm. But at the same time, it's a sort of tribune from which you can look out at the world beyond. And also importantly, and this came up in the responses, I thought it was really interesting, that it's also about you being seen. So you're seen and you're identified with your home. And, and interestingly, of course, in those instances, on verandas and on porches and in these kind of spaces, there's also an opportunity for meeting. And there's less pressure because you're not bringing somebody right into your home and you're not out in, in the public realm as yet. So you can pause for a moment or for a minute or five minutes, exchange pleasantries or whatever you want to be, and then move on your business. So those kind of in-between spaces actually probably are the most valuable addition to a home that one can have. Hi, um, my name is uh, Margaret Mulcahy. I'm an architect, and I, um, I live in Dundanian Court, which is a courtyard scheme, and uh, that idea around threshold it was designed in the 1960s, as we know, in the modernist housing scheme. It's based around two courtyards. All of the houses form edge to effectively a theatre, that children have that perch to work from, and that people inside their homes are able to look at children from. A very, very love scheme. And it's really to do with that communal space that acts as so many different arenas for children, older people, who are very much engaged with our young children and they're forming memory with the older people, some of them who have been there since the outset. Part of it is actually, it works really well because there are no cars, it's really safe. There are only two pedestrian entrances into the courtyards, all the living spaces front onto it, the front doors front onto it, and it's fully glazed like your Farnsworth house, but we do have neck curtains. So you have the choice, you know, you can open them or not. Where are the cars? Oh, sorry, the car is actually, we have access to the back. 
back yeah. of our houses are where we arrive in with the groceries. My name is Darius Bartlett and I'm a retired geographer from UCC. I'm also one of Ireland's new citizens and at the citizenship ceremony that I went to earlier this year, there were people from well over 100 different countries who had left one home to establish a new one here in Ireland. And they came from very different cultures, very different environments, belief systems, and so on. So I'm interested to know how will this changing demographic affect the houses that we have, the homes that we have here in Ireland, and how will the homes that are in Ireland affect these new people? This goes back to this question of the back and forth. I mean, on the one hand, we're shaped, and on the other hand, we shape. I'm thinking more in our cities and the way in which different patterns of inhabitation, different kind of larger family groups, say, for instance, living together in different kind of configurations, that I think that does make a difference to the public realm. And maybe over time, it might make a difference to the way in which houses are built and inhabited. My sense in general is that the production of houses and apartments tend to be incredibly conservative, slow to change. They tend to want to stick to the known model because it's economic, because they think that it can be sold. So in fact, the housing provision lags well behind the cultural change. I'm arguing a little bit against what I was saying in the talk, but I think in this instance, cultural change generally happens ahead of the housing coming in behind it. Uh, you say who's I'm an art historian. And I'm just thinking about our great nation builders, Nan O'Nagel and Thomas Davis from North Cork, who went out of their own homes for the greater good of others. And I'm wondering how you, Professor Campbell, imagine, say, the lace makers whom the presentation nuns were so brilliant at fostering, when they moved out of their small cottages and went to the regulated spaces of the convents in which they sometimes made their lace, not always. How do you think that would have impacted psychologically? I'm yeah. very interested in that positive possibilities about which I'm only able to speculate, but you yeah. might have a view, please. I mentioned Herman Melville's story, The Eye on My Chimney. is another extraordinary story he has called Paradise of Bachelors and the Tartarus of Maids, which describes two, in this case these are places of work rather than homes, but he describes a barrister's chambers in the King's Inn in London, this place where they're constantly eating and having a good time, and then he moves to New England to a completely white landscape with a, a shirt-making factory full entirely of single women. So single bachelors on the one hand and single women on the other. And it's incredibly evocative of how a place in which we find ourselves conditions behaviour, conditions character, but also maybe it offers the idea that as you move, so your character can change and so new possibilities emerge. I'm not sure that's answering your question, but it's just thoughts that are prompted by it. My name is Silvia Brandi and I'm working at UCC also. My background uh, is uh, in social policy and applied social studies. The idea of homes and emotions is very interesting, but it recalls me especially the idea of traveler-specific accommodation and the way that policy can constrain or impede or favor specific needs of people or living in terms of the psychological impact of not having the home that corresponds to your feeling of home yeah. for travelers, for example. We sort of assume that there's broad patterns of configuration that everybody can easily adjust to. And sometimes, of course, that's not the case. This is where the specificity of design and of a design response can be transformative. A very simple thing like the thresholds we were talking about earlier, or like the separation or not of rooms from each other, the provision of separate spaces where those are needed. It's a sort of thoughtfulness, isn't it? And about maybe recognizing just small things that might make a certain kind of inhabitation 
more comfortable for somebody. But Ashling will have a different view, I'm sure. I mentioned our own psychiatric unit, which is four years old now, and we previously inhabited, as is so often the case in general hospitals, the basement, a bit like the attic in Jane Eyre, I guess. Six bedded wards, and that would have been the 1970s design. So we built this beautiful new unit, all single rooms, and they're all en suite, and they're all adherent to Mental Health Commission guidelines. But a lot of our inner city Cork older ladies hate it because they loved the six-bedded ward. You know, they love that. The the stoop, I I think, sitting and chatting. It's been very interesting because it's thrown up lots of issues for the staff um, and probably for most of the patients. It's a much nicer building. My name is Lane. I'm a student of local history at UCC. I'm interested in this idea about private and public space as well. With Professor Campbell's lecture, he was looking to abroad for examples of that but if we look back in Irish history there is a lot of examples of ancient buildings that had communal space and also more communal use of land. I'm thinking of things like the ring forts. In those spaces you had an enclosure and then you had lots of different people living in sort of semi-private space within the community and maybe that approximates some of what other people in the audience were saying, that they like to find ways to interact with their neighbours where they, where they feel safe. What's, what's also interesting about it is that the use of circular space uh, created by non-linear walls, let's say when women are in charge of space, they, t- they tended to running a meeting to have the chairs in a circle was a classic thing in, in the women's movement. And whereas you referred to the sort of antagonistic architecture of the House of Commons, which tends to lead to confrontation rather than community. When we start looking at the standard typologies of home that we take for granted, we quickly realise how relatively recent a lot of those are how relatively Western, and how, in fact, they might, they might readily be reinvented precisely by looking at other models and, as you were saying, looking back to our own past. And it's interesting we're in a moment where, notwithstanding the issues of homelessness and also the issue of other models for how people can live together, and there's lots of not terribly generous or enticing versions of those being designed and planned at the moment, if not being always given permission. But it does seem to me that like Dundanian, there are in fact lots of models for somewhere in between, for the less absolute division between individuals and each other and between individuals and public. I would like to think that we will maybe move away a little bit from the private realm of the back garden and the extension and and into some larger thinking about how we live collectively. On that note, thank you, Professor Hugh Campbell, with his talk, Houses in Motion. You can listen back to this or any other programmes of the series on the RT Davis Now Lectures website or as a podcast wherever you get yours. Thank you.